0: right into our uh, confidence in Christ study. So let's go right ahead. Um, Today we're going to talk a little bit about confidence killers. Uh, last week, we got to have the really fun talk about all our possessions in Christ, or last week, rather, the last study, and uh, enjoyable as that was, it was a bit long. I think I clocked out at the longest Wednesday night service I've ever taught, at an hour and ten minutes, but I uh, get so excited talking about all that's ours in Christ. And today, we're going to talk about Christian confidence killers and uh, why why we still struggle even though we know, we might know or we have an idea of all these things that are true of us in Christ. And so we ask why, why do we have people go back to the altar again and again and again, right? following uh, altar call after altar call, going through conversion after reconversion. I grew up in a a Christian outreach camp and there were groups of kids who would stand up and get saved every single summer. Why did they keep getting saved every summer? Did they feel like it was wearing off? Did they feel like it wasn't working? Um, Did they question their salvation? And other times people ask and wonder, If I'm saved, why am I still struggling? Why do I still struggle with sin? How come I'm still not perfect yet? Why can't I get this right? It's a constant challenge for Christians and and believers, and it is a confidence killer. People refrain. uh, People will even refrain from sharing the gospel because they're just not confident in how their Christian life is going. And I imagine each of us can identify with this at some level, at some way, in some time in your Christian walk, where you went went, "Is this really working? Is this really going?" Have I goofed up? Have I failed? Did I not believe right? And then it's even more confused by the ridiculous uh, teaching of some churches that you have to have the right kind of faith. You have to have this magical saving faith. Now, the Bible knows nothing of this, and yet there are Christians who teach that there needs to be some sort of magical special faith. And so they, they say, well, I wanted to be saved, and I did trust in Jesus Christ. I knew my need, but I'm not perfect yet. I must need to try to believe harder, believe better, believe something different. They get very confused, of course, and that's a huge confidence killer. So, before we go into uh, addressing these confidence killers, uh, and, and we'll see where they come from and, and what they're, how they're remedied, it may or may not be surprising to you how they're remedied, uh, we were gonna remind us where we went. We talked about how the Christian has one place to find confidence, and that is in our identification in Christ. We see that with Christ we were crucified. The minute anyone trusts Jesus Christ for their salvation, for uh, his death on the cross, for the payment of our sin and his resurrection, we are identified. God spiritually places us in the cross at his crucifixion. We were buried with Christ. We were raised with Christ. We were ascended with Christ. And we are seated with Christ. We call these the identification truths. This is something that we would not know, we would not figure it out. If this were not enthroned in the word of God, then you would never figure this out. There's no experience, there's no set of feelings, there's no, you know, go to this weekend camp and get really identified with Jesus. And even learning about it doesn't identify you more with Jesus, it's just learning about what is already true of you in Christ. So when we talk about these positional realities, sometimes this, uh, this diagram can be more helpful even than the last. Um, and, and essentially, when you have this person in the, uh, to the right of the screen here, right? Yeah, the right of the screen here. When you have this person to the right of the screen, that's you. That's you in time as you're going along not knowing Christ. And when you placed faith, the scripture tells us that God reckoned you, God accounted you. Now remember, God is the author of truth. When God says something, it becomes true, right? And you think about it, when we lie as humans, we will often lie for various reasons, uh, known and unknown to us, or understood and not understood to us, right, wishing that we can make our words reality. But that is a specific and unique characteristic of God. God is called in Titus the cannot lie God, and it's partially because he would never lie according to his character, but I think it goes further from this. I think he's incapable of lying, that if God were to tell a lie, it would become the truth on merit of his power and character. Character and authority and majesty, and this is what God has said is true of every believer. Whether you have an experience of it or a feeling of it, which you don't, you have no memory of being on the cross with Christ. But this is the stated reality, the stated spiritual reality of your being. So when you trust Christ, spiritually speaking, God took that essence of you and placed it or counted it on the cross with Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was buried, you were buried with him, taking you in a fashion back spiritually, back in time to be identified with him. When Christ was resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, you were ascended with him. And that's where Colossians 3 tells us you you are hidden and your life is hidden away with Christ. So, every single day, you walk around in your day-to-day life, And you are in, spiritually, two places at once, you might say. Spiritually speaking, you are seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. And then you have this other reality, of which we call our daily condition. And your daily condition is how you live your day-to-day life. You are perfected in Christ. You are placed in Christ. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. You are set high above all rule and authority, all dominion and power. And nothing can reach you where you are seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. And our daily condition is meant to be lived out. How? By faith. Right, This is Galatians 2.20. What did Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I uh, now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God. Now we go on living in faith in the Son of God. And we're going to learn a little bit about what that means. But today... So hopefully you've noticed in the last three sessions we've been talking about learning to live with confidence in your position. And we noticed we highlighted it again and again and again. You've trusted in Christ. This is true of you. When you've trusted in Christ, this is how God sees you as completed and at the right hand of the Father. Always end of sentence and his truth will ultimately win out over the day whether you uh, pass away whether we die or whether we're raptured to go be with him at some point that position and that condition are going to be identical what god decreed about us everyone who believes will be made true in that time but in the meantime we need to learn how to live with confidence in our daily condition, okay? So I'm gonna use language uh, that I'd like to introduce you to and and hopefully it'll be not too perplexing or complex. But when I talk about your eternal position, I'm talking about the fact that you've been identified with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension and seating, permanently placed within him and never to be removed. When I talk about your daily condition, I'm talking about what's going on here and now. And as we've seen, we have the opportunity to either live in keeping with our eternal position, or as we're going to see, you can live uh, in uh, distinction, in counter-distinction to your eternal condition, or eternal position. It doesn't change your position at all. But you can either live authentically as God has redeemed you and declared you to be, or you can live a lie, so to speak. Now, the primary reason why Christians live without confidence is because we haven't uh, found or considered what it means to live with and find confidence in Christ alone. So, in order to understand this, the big shortcoming here that causes believers, Christians who are saved, some of whom even understand and know their position, to live without confidence, has often to do with a misunderstanding about their spiritual anatomy. How many of us have heard the phrase um, id, ego, superego? Right? You heard this? This this is psychology 101. This is a, uh, a theory by a spiritual blind man. It's Freud, right? A spiritual blind man who is a cocaine addict and possibly demonized. Okay? And yet, this possibly demonized, fully deluded, spiritual blind person came up with a theory that inside every human is an id. And that id is your animal instinct. And it's the lowest part of you. It's the part that goes, me, 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 me. And then you have your ego, or well, let's go the other way. You have your superego, which is the part of you that's always saying, that's what I should do, that's what I want to be, and your ego's trying to make do between the two. Is that fair, Doug? Doug, I you know you've got a long, hard, long background in this. That is stupid. It's not stupid for a spiritually blind person. It might even be pretty impressive to a certain extent. But what you have to realize when you experience lies of the world like this is that they are coming from a perspective that is certainly not biblical. It's certainly not Christian, right? So the idea of an id, an ego, and a superego comes from godless evolutionary ideas that we were once animals and then we somehow evolved or graduated and added to our animal nature something new, something extra. Now, of course, not even these fools have an explanation for how that happened, but they're trying to make sense of what the Bible's very clear about. You don't have an id, an ego, and a superego. We're going to see that you have a sin nature, and you have a new nature, and you have a will, you have uh, a choice to make. There's another really poisonous idea called the subconscious out there. I bet we've accepted that. Like, ah, somewhere in my subconscious. And we've got this idea that there's this mystical, magical, uh, below-the-surface iceberg of, of things going on. And we only experience that small tip of our conscious mind. But the real work's going on in our subconscious which we might have to access through uh, hypnotism or some sort of mind emptying, opening ourselves up to demonic effort or uh, imagining and trying to uh, reason or rationalize things by our history. And all of these things are, get this, lies. What the world calls its subconscious, especially if you're talking about a non-believer, is their sin nature feeding sinful ideas into their sinful lives. When you talk about a redeemed person, our subconscious is similarly probably always held into, oh, at a subconscious level, I said that, or I said that, you know, mean thing to her, because at a subconscious level I have a deep resentment for. No, you said that mean thing to her because you're sinful and you're walking in the means by means of the flesh. This idea of a subconscious is biblically speaking ridiculous. And it's those ideas poison us and cause us to misunderstand. So what we need to do if we're going to live with confidence in our day-to-day condition is understand a little bit of, a little bit of something about our spiritual anatomy. So we'll start by going to Ephesians 2: 1 through3. It says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath just as the others. So here and in other places in Scripture, Paul describes the unbelieving mind. And we were all among them at one point, right? None of us was born regenerate. None of us was born into a right relationship with God. And we find that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we see that that means separated from the life and light of God. We were identified with our sins and being in the wrong place. So though, in other words, we were, we were sinful in our nature and everything that we did proved it. And we walked according to or completely deluded by the power of the world, by the deceptions of the enemy, Satan, and of the, uh, this, uh, finally of our sin nature to fulfilling the, the lusts of the flesh. So if we're going to make this a visual representation of what's going on, we can uh, look at it this way. Here you are, In Adam your first identification every believer is born into this corporate identity in Adam that's our old man that's all of who we are apart from Christ and we're gonna see it says all of who you were because something great happened to you if you trusted in Jesus you have a mind your mind is darkened, right? Apart from Christ. Our mind is uh, hopelessly worldly and set against the things of God. We have a history that is exactly our history. We have both a, a corporate history of uh, our sin in Adam, our collective sin in Adam and Eve. And we have an uh, individual history that proves and bears that out. We have an ownership. We are owned. We are the possession. or We are owned by sin. We're enslaved by sin, as we see. And we have a sin nature. That's the only thing we have. We have a nature. Have you ever heard that term? It's just human nature. See, again, we take that secularly and we think of that more as a, new, a neutral thing. Think of something we learn about by observation. But when we're talking about human nature, at least in the biblical sense, we're talking about the sin nature. The sin nature that longs for self, that longs for self-adulation or worship, that longs to see its will done. The, the sin nature that has listened to the temptation of the serpent and wants to be like God's right of course well let's continue on and find out what happens here but I want to point this out the non-believer has only one nature to work from that sin nature might do something very very good Like, you know, feeding the poor or helping the hungry, do nice things to people. It might be the most pleasant and kind, sweet, placating person in the world, but it's coming from the sin nature, and therefore it is unacceptable to God. In fact, it says uh, in Isaiah 64, 6, where he says, all your righteousness are as filthy rags. And without being overly graphic, he's talking about the rags that a woman would use to soak up the emissions from her monthly cycle. And you say, that's gross. And God's word says, yes, that's gross. That's what your best good is from the sin nature. I guess we could use sort of an analogy. When you think of the worst person in all of human history, it doesn't matter. Uh, maybe make it, uh, make it Stalin, make it Hitler. I don't know who you're. Make it, I don't know, Britney Spears. I don't care. They're terrible, you know, this terrible, terrible person. I'm sorry. Britney is probably not, doesn't belong on that list. Uh, but <laughs> but you take that terrible, terrible person, and you knew, just pretending you knew everything about them, but they sent you flowers every day. Would you go, oh, but they send me flowers every day. That's awesome. They're not that bad. Or would you just recognize that those flowers were coming from a person so awful, so important, so disgusting, you'd go, nope, don't want to be caught accepting those flowers, right? It's kind of a similar thing. God is so... Um, righteous and so holy that he cannot be approached even by the best placating efforts of our sin nature. And so that's where we are, unable to please God with a nature that's unable to please God, no matter what choices it makes. Ephesians continues on. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sorry, that doesn't four through six, that's four through ten, but it's well worth putting those extras on there. So um, our hopelessness is met by this great big God's statement, right? The the change is not in man, the change is in what God did to enter into our situation he is rich in mercy having to do with his character, he has great love having to do with his intent and attitude towards us, this great love with which he loved us um, even when we were dead in our trespasses—that's our cur- our, po- our old position—he now made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Raise us up together, right? This is what we saw in our position and uh, yeah, our position talk, right? So we see that we have this new position in Christ. So now everything that you were in Adam is gone, is done away with, or as Paul would say in Romans six, which we'll look at in a moment, that we have been crucified, um, sorry, (laughs) that we have been baptized into his death and therefore our old man was crucified with Christ, was done away with, it was gone. It is no more in the sight of God. So we have our old man. We have who we were in Adam. An old man in scripture is used uh, frequently. It's a positional statement, not a conditional statement. Um, And and when we place faith in Christ, we now are made a new creature, a new creation. We are remade and given this new position in Christ. We're no longer in the Adam book, right? We're in the Christ book. We're in the Jesus book. We share his uh, life and his destiny. We have a new mind. We're given the mind of Christ, right? This isn't about your brain. This isn't the gray matter. This is the new mind of Christ. This is the access to the, between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You now have a new way of thinking. You have a new history. When God looks at you, he doesn't see all the things that you've done. He sees the perfect work of his son, Jesus Christ. You have this new history that is yours, and you have a new ownership. Now, you are owned by... The God of the universe, bought with the blood. You have a new spirit or a new operating system, a new nature. Sorry, I actually mixed two things in this. You have a new nature, which is the the Holy Spirit of God. And then something interesting happens, and that's that your sin nature, because you stay in this body, goes with you. It's no longer a permanent part of you. In fact, you're separated from it, as we're going to see. But it is allowed to continue on. So now the believer has two natures. Maybe there's sin nature, or flesh, sometimes called in Scripture. And we have our new nature, in the Holy Spirit. We're going to be looking in the next weeks about how those two are going to be relating to each other in our life. In this new, and I realize that this is going to be hard to read, but in our new identification, before we were separated from God and his life, now we are separated from the law We're separated from the sin nature, and we're separated from the world. And you say, but I still feel like I'm affected by the law, the sin nature, and the world. We're going to see that death in Scripture means separation in terms of legal separation. So while these things can still wreak havoc if we let them, we are separated entirely from their authority from God's perspective. We're separated from those things. So while the sin nature is still a factor for us, having something to do, I suspect, with keeping us in these bodies that are touched by sin. I think it has something to do with that. I don't want to be overly—try uh, to be overly clear because um, would be, I wouldn't be able to do so. But <clears throat> in the midst of this, when you trust in Christ, you're given this whole new identification, this whole new opportunity, this whole new way of living. And uh, we'll look at what that means. We have these things that hang on. You got your old body, right? When you trusted Jesus, you didn't get a new body, did you? Not yet. We will. Did you get a new I, I be bummed out if you'd been giving them out early if someone got you know freebies and I didn't. Um, we didn't get a new body. We kept our same body. We kept our same characteristics and personal personality traits. We kept our same identity. When you trusted Christ you didn't have to go change your driver's license and get a new picture because no one recognized you. Everyone knew who you were, right? If you liked ice cream before you trusted Christ you probably liked the same kind of ice cream after you trusted Christ. Things stay the same. There's a continuity of your personhood and yet everything from the spiritual standpoint has changed dramatically and you now have a new way of living so with that we'll go to Romans 6 to talk a little bit about what this new way of living looks like I want to remind you that the enemy's goal is to confuse us it's to misinform us even misinforming us about the nature of our salvation even misinforming us about how we're meant to grow and live why Because that's exactly what he wants. Once you're saved, you are out of his court. You are out of his reach. He can do nothing to touch your eternal destiny. What's the one thing he can do? Take you off the battlefield. The last thing he can do, the only thing he can do, is hope that he can keep you from it growing, from glorifying Christ, and from influencing others. So that's why there's so much misinformation about this. That's why there's that deep uh, expectation. Like, if I really believed, why am I not perfect? And that's why we have such horrible, horrible thoughts when we see a Christian doing something that displeases us or even something that's horribly simple. We say, well, there's no way she's saved doing that. Why do we do that? Because we have misinformation and misunderstandings about what the Christian growth process looks like. Romans 6 takes us uh, under its wing. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that uh, as many of us were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lived, he lives to God. Now you'll notice that or you may be able to notice that I highlighted the word sin in all these instances. And the reason why is that there's a big change. You can even notice it in English as you read through in your in your Bible. When he's talking in Romans one through five, he doesn't talk about sin, singular. He talks about sins, plural. The sins, the sins, the sins, the sins, the sins, right? Because the sins are at issue. He's trying to prove to us that we are all sinful, that we have all sinned, that we've all goofed up and we're all guilty before God. But when we get to Romans 6, we've got a whole different issue. He actually, in the Greek, puts the definite article, the word the, before the word sin. The best translation of this is what the NIV gives us with the sin nature. It actually just spells it out for us. The sin nature. Right? So when it's talking about the sin, it could be talking about an individual sin, but that doesn't seem contextually to fit. What does fit is the idea is that we all have this sin nature continuing. So he's saying, what shall we say then? We've been saved and safe eternally and secured, says Romans 1 through 5. What shall we say now since, since grace is so great? Shall we continue in the sin nature, living in the sin nature that, sin, that grace might abound for us, over our sin? He says, certainly not. Because you died to the sin nature. You were separated from the sin nature. doesn't mean it went away. It means that it no longer has authority in your life. And then he goes on and, and tells us that um, we, are, we were, were slaves to the sin nature. Just as we saw uh, before in our, our, in our little diagram here. The non-believer only has the sin nature to work from. That is the very definition of slavery. I mean, if you lived in a place where you could only work in one place and your choices were to starve to death or work at that one mine, you know, coal mine, then you're effectively a slave, right? Because your only choice is to work at the coal mine or die, Right? It's simple, similar to what the sin nature's relationship to the unbeliever is. You're absolutely enslaved to it. Whether you use the sin or whether you, you know, negotiate with that sin nature to do things that appear good in the world or appear evil in the world, it doesn't matter. You're controlled entirely by the self-seeking, self-serving, broken sin nature that keeps you in a wrong or par- uh, separated relationship to God. Okay? This is, all, this is all review, really, based on what we've talked about in previous weeks. So this is where things get a little bit more exciting. Talk about our condition more. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. Your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So what's Paul's uh, command here? Remember, before he wasn't telling you to do anything, he was just describing the truth. He said, Don't you realize you've died to sin? Why would you want to live under that? You were a slave to sin, but now you're not. And so now we get into the things where he's finally telling you how we're meant to react to this. And he says, reckon yourself. Legetsumai is the Greek word. It means to put it down as a fact. It's an accounting term. Write it down in the books. Live as if that's the ultimate true spiritual fact. Is he telling you to play pretend? No, it is the truth. You are separated from sin. You are freed from sin. He's telling you to count on the truth as the truth. If you've ever done anything really scary, like having to do with maybe high ropes or going over, uh, you know, the great, what's the big gorge, the bridge with the the royal gorge, right? People talk about how, how scared they are. If it's your first time going through, you don't know if you're going to make it. But you imagine if you worked there all summer, you are going over it three times a day. By the end, you'd be doing cartwheels over the thing because you know you can do it. You're confident in it. You've established that that bridge, as much as it might not look so from a very, you know, in a very deep level, it actually is safe, right? You actually are safe on it. So you're counting on a, on a spiritual fact. The spiritual fact is unchanging, whether you choose to count on it or you choose to be deceived, but, or you want up being deceived, but Paul is exhorting us to count on that revealed spiritual fact rather than the lies of the world, the lies of the flesh, the lies of our sin nature, and and, the, and so on. He says, therefore, you do not let sin reign. Now, Whenever you get to an imperative, I want to note that the imperative is, in far as, as far as language goes, is the furthest from reality, okay? There's the indicative mood, that's, that's the idea in the Greek that this is what it is, this is how situations are. Then there's the optative, it might be this way and it might be that way. And then there's the imperative, which is as far from reality as it can be, because you might do it, you might not. To understand this, all I have to do is say, if, or think about what happens when you tell a child to clean their room. That statement is as far from reality as it possibly could be and it would take an act of will for them to actually turn around and do it right that's the picture here if Paul is making imperative commands to do these things or giving us this instruction it means that as Christians we might what we might not We might fail to do them, right? We might not know, because that's what he was originally started. He said, do you not know, right? We might not know that this is what the Christian life is about. In fact, I would argue that most Christians, most people who have trusted Christ today, don't know. They don't know how they're meant to live. So they go around doing what? What do they do? How am I going to stop sinning? I need to find a set of rules. I need to find an accountability buddy. I need to find some way that I, can, that I can stop this sinning. I need to stop this sin nature. I need to stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning. So then we go through and we make all these lists and we put them on our fridge and we make sure that we do our spiritual push-ups and our spiritual sit ups. And then we try to, oh, and then we, what? Fail, fall, fall short and wonder. What do we wonder? Did I really get saved? Did it really work? Is this really true? right? Most, of the, most people don't experience confidence in their walk with Christ, not because they're not perfect, but because they don't understand God's plan for growth in the Christian life. And so when anything happens, where we, where, and we walk by means of the flesh, wherein we fall down, where we sin, we just doubt everything, and we're a mess, and we're a wreck from that point on. We try to live by law, and what happens? We fail, and we think, what did I do wrong? Why can't I succeed at this? Because we're not listening to God's wisdom. What we see is quite the opposite, that God wants us to grow by means of process. And that process of growing to know him comes by a slow, day-by-day path of learning what he said in his word, learning what he's provided for us in the person and work of his son Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit and the provision of his word in his church surrounding and learning how to trust in his perfect provision. His perfect provisions aren't changing. Our willingness to trust them is what's meant to change. And you could say, God, I don't like your idea. Why didn't you just perfect me Instantly. Why didn't we want that, right? That's what causes us to doubt, is that we're not perfect right away. It's what causes us foolishly to doubt other people's salvation. They're not perfect yet. How dare they? We want to question God's method, but God has a reason for this. Probably, certainly, far deeper than what we could know now. But here's at least what I think is part of the heart of it. God invented time. God invented process. God invented good, growing things. God didn't design us like a computer to just quickly download the God file or the God protocol and be perfectly, permanently changed. We're too much made in his image for that. He designed us to grow, to learn, to walk with him, And just like a loving father, he's patient with us in that process. If he wanted it to be otherwise, he would have made it otherwise. And yet we often experience a lack of confidence in our day-to-day walk because we want now what he wants to give us over the course of our entire lifetime walking with Christ. Interestingly, when you think about someone who says, I want it now, I want it now, I want it now, I don't want to wait, I want it now. Who do you think of? A child, right? That's childish. That's immature. And yet, just like Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were promised something by God, right? They were promised I, they were promised an heir, promised a child. And after a while, they got tired of waiting, so they tried to do it themselves, right? So they got the handmaid and and Hagar, and they had the, the, the baby, and there comes Ishmael, and God says, oh, no, no. That's not the way I'm doing things. Because if I allowed this Ishmael thing to work out, then you would have had a hand in it. It wouldn't be the supernatural work of God and God alone. It wouldn't be God's plan to God's glory for his praise so that we might trust and know him. It would be you doing 10%, 5%, 25%, whatever it is. But just like in our salvation, our justification, which is done by faith alone, through grace alone, you contribute none of it, so it is with our uh, growth. Our growth will finally, after that process of days and months and years, be a process whereby someone says, oh, you're so godly. You're so loving. That was so gracious of you. And you say, yeah, no, I wanted to punch you in the teeth. But that's what God's done in me. God will get all the glory. And there will be no question in your mind that that's how uh, God had been growing you. Right? That's the cycle. Right? We decide, I'm not going to do that sin. So we don't do that sin for an entire week. And then we start to think, I'm pretty good at not doing that sin. And then what? It's pride, and you fall. You fall into that sin or you fall into some worse sin because you're just paying attention to the wrong things. And many Christians will spend their entire lives on that awful spiritual treadmill, only growing in that brief moment where they finally lose faith in their own ability to keep the law, keep the rules, and have given up for God to actually work on them in their humility. And then they pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and try again. That's not what God has for us. Every time we fall, we're gonna find that we fall because we put our confidence in the wrong place. So here's our picture. Here's our picture of who you are, the new person, all you are in Christ. You have a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You have your new nature um, from which to live. That comes from relying wholly upon Christ. So, in conclusion, in our uh, talk tonight, talk about, we've talked about your confidence killers. Next week we talk about we're going to talk a lot more about how we're meant to walk, how we're meant to live this day-to-day Christian life. But our biggest confidence killers are, first of all, unbiblical expectations. You haven't looked to the word of God to say what it's supposed to look like and so then you're disappointed when it doesn't look like what you imagine or what you want it to look like. I want instant maturity. I want to already be the best. I want to already be perfect and God's going, no, I've got a whole process for this whereby you're going to learn to abide in me and rely upon me and trust in me and you're going to learn who I am and you're going to learn who you are and I'm going to make you into this new wonderful thing. But we want it now. We expect it now. And that unbiblical expectation of instant perfection causes us to lose confidence and say, well, I guess I may as well give up. Or I need to strike twice as hard next time. And God never blesses those efforts. So the first unbiblical expectations are a confidence killer. You need to know what the Word of God says. Paul himself, could there be a, a, a better example of a super-Christian he says, I have not attained it, but this I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching towards what's ahead. That's the picture. Paul's telling that. Paul comes to the end of his life writing in 2 Timothy. And what is he? He's the greatest of all saints? No. He's the, great, he's the chief of all sinners. If Paul experienced that in life, are you expecting more? Or is it possible that that same struggle will be a characteristic of every Christian's life? That if you're expecting to be loosed from the influence of the sin nature, you're looking for something that comes in what we might call phase three when we're finally with Christ. Expecting that before then and then questioning your faith It's only foolishness. Next, confidence killer, not understanding the growth plan. If you don't understand how you're supposed to grow, you're certainly not going to be doing it right. And if you're not doing it right, if you're not thinking the right way, then not only will God not bless you, he can't. Just like he can't save a person who tries really, 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 really hard to do the right thing. He can only save a person who's given up on trying really, really, really hard, so he cannot save, cannot grow and mature you while you're trying really, 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 really hard to do the right things. He can only save you when you're finally willing to say, Lord, in my flesh dwells no good thing, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. Next. A confidence killer is not living in constant confident understanding in your position. You're not going to live in confidence until you are, or unless rather, sorry, unless you are living in confidence in what God's word says. Because if you're not trusting in your position in Christ, you're trusting in yourself. And we've just established over the last course of the last several weeks of this study that yourself is the one last place where you can't put any confidence reasonably. Self-confidence is a gag, especially in the spiritual realm. Self-confidence is a joke. It's a deception. And it is a confidence killer when we try to put our confidence anywhere else. So if you're walking around and you feel underconfident in your Christian life, you can know for an absolute fact that you've got your confidence put where? on yourself. You're trying, to find con- you're trying to find reason for confidence in yourself. Right? And that's when we get into the most toxic kind of Christianity. It's the kind of Christianity that says, well, I might not be perfect, but I'm better than you. The worst kind of Christians imaginable, right, are the ones who are trying to win by comparison. The only comparison point is the perfection of Jesus Christ, and he's given you his life by his grace, to be lived by faith in his gift. The final reason, and this is, these would be concentric circles if we were to chart them, but you will never have confidence when you're walking according to your sin nature. When you're living according to your sin nature, when you're walking according to the ways of this world, when you're letting your sin nature call the shots, you're gonna be underconfident. Or worse yet, self-confident and then you're going to goof up, and then you're going to be underconfident. So, if you're not, at any given point in your Christian life, experiencing and living with confidence, realize that you're either not trusting in your eternal position in what Jesus Christ has done, and or you're walking according to the sin nature. The sin nature only brings forth sin. The, only, the sin nature only brings forth that which is not pleasing to God. And when we walk in that, um, in that nature, we know that we're not right walking with God. And the good news is that he's given everything you need for life and godliness. The question is, where will your focus and your faith be today? Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the great gift of your Son, for the perfect provision given to us in him. As we understand our eternal position, we grow in confidence. As we understand your character, your love, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the life which we've been given, we grow in confidence as we live this life. As we grow to understand and truly trust and believe that our life is hidden away with you and there's nothing on this earth that can damage or impact us in any way in our eternal position, grow in confidence when we humbly rely abide in your son listen to and trust in your word and walk by faith in your perfect provision we walk with confidence because that confidence is placed in your son Jesus Christ the only person who's worthy might we sing your praises and live every step by abiding in your son by walking by means of your spirit with all confidence and faith in what you've done in jesus name we pray amen and with that i'll hand over the uh